It's a a very dark passage of Scripture, isn't it? And uh, one which which always sobers us and challenges us as, as we read, and yet one which is really useful to us as we think of our society and the events uh, which have gone on over the past few decades and the changes within moral standards which all of us have have witnessed. Uh, And so we come to to think of our society this evening and its moral declension as explained to us by this passage in Romans. R.C. Sproul, uh, the well-known Reformed uh, theologian, he studied for uh, postgraduate studies in Amsterdam under a Dutch theologian, G.C. Berkauer. G.C. Berkauer was a prolific writer, and, and somehow I came to be in possession of his theological works, which stretched to 15 volumes. And they sit there uh, on my shelf. And what is noticeable about his volumes is one volume he has which is double the thickness of every other volume of the 15. And reviewers of Berkauer's work have always drawn attention uh, to this extra large volume uh, which he has written. The volume has one word title and it is the short word sin. And it is an unusual feature of systematic theologians to devote such extensive attention to the doctrine of sin. Berker takes his time over the doctrine. He looks at it from different angles. He teases out the, the biblical teaching. He anticipates objections to his views. And so he ends up with this sizable volume on sin. And perhaps that's theologian uniquely focusing on the the doctrine of sin is reflecting the theological emphasis which the Apostle Paul gives to that doctrine in his theological treatise in the book of Romans. Because Paul As he looks at human sin, he takes his time. He teases out the angles, the objections, the essence of the teaching on sin. He looks at it in chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and then chapter 3. He delays bringing us the teaching of the good news until he has ponderously set before us the teaching on the bad news. He come to look at all of us in chapter 3. He'll look at the Jews in chapter 2. But in chapter 1 that we've been focused on, he's looking at the Gentiles. The woman who doesn't have a Bible and has never read the Bible. The man who's never gone to church. What about them? Where do they stand before the holy, almighty, all-creating God? And his answer is that they have no excuse. 
God's wrath, he says in verse 18, is revealed, is being revealed currently now against all unbelievers, including those who have never read a Bible or attended an evangelical place of worship. Against many in middle class England, against many of the children in the city of Glasgow who have never heard the name of Jesus. The apostle argues painstakingly that they are without excuse. But how are they without excuse? And he takes his time to spell this out for us. And he argues that the book of nature, God's revelation and creation is so clear, is so universal that knowledge of the existence of God and of the attributes of God are known to all mankind, as Psalm 19 asserts, that in every language, in every place, knowledge of God and of his attributes is known. And we thought of that last Sabbath evening, the assertion in verse 21, they knew God. Verse 18, they have the truth inside of them. And now he goes on to address what do they do with that truth. Your colleague at work who never goes to church or has never read the Bible. They know there is a God innately, spontaneously. Every human being, we we assert that there's no real atheist because deep down in the soul and heart of mankind, there is that innate, inbuilt, God-given awareness. That he exists, that he is there, that he is sovereign, that he is judge. Burkhoff uses the phrase that man is incurably religious to tease out this assertion of the apostle. That in our very essence, there is this awareness of God. But what does mankind do with that? And this is bringing us on to the explanation of his assertion that God's wrath is being revealed. Why is it being revealed against mankind who is outside of Jesus Christ and, and unbelieving? Because mankind is taking that clear revelation of God, that innate awareness of God, and suppressing it and distorting it. And not responding to it, as he says in verse 21, with praise and honor and thanksgiving. And so this evening we're thinking of God's response to the rejection of his worship and honor, which his revelation of himself in creation demands of us. Now in these verses, uh, verses 22 to 32, there is three big paragraphs. And the big paragraphs are parallel. They contain three elements in each of the three paragraphs which mirror each other. There is the, the human reaction, first of all. Then there is the divine retribution. And then there is the ensuing result. And we want to see in this incredible section, and as we look at our society, we will begin to understand what is happening in our time. What is going on here? 
Why is our society going the way it is? Romans 1 supplies answers for us. First of all, the human rejection. The human rejection of this truth, this knowledge of God. And what's, what's the important point in this sermon to grasp is in, in understanding the text of, of Romans 1. This is the intellectual part, how you apply that into your life. Uh, we will try and help you with. But grasping the, the, the exegesis of this section of Scripture is three key words. Three key words which are found in the first element of the paragraph and in the last element of the paragraph. So the sins which are committed will be mirrored in the punishment which society receives. The very wrong actions of society are reflected in the punishment which is given to society by God. The three words are dishonor, exchange, and unfit. So here's the the human rejection. They dishonor God. We have this In verse 21, his revelation comes. His greatness, his eternal power, as we thought of last week, his divinity, his godhood, his omnipresence, omniscience. What does mankind do in the main? We dishonor him. We do not show him the befitting worship and honor and praise that he deserves. Verse 21 says, they do not honor him. In fact, we express our dishonor by turning to idolatry. We we try to make a, a visible representation of God. How we imagine God to be, we create an images of stone or, or, or of wood or of some other idol of our own making. The argument for idolatry is that this visible item will represent the unseen God. But inevitably, the object of worship shifts from the unseen God to the visible item. So that the visible item is considered God and revered and honored. And the apostle sets out the dishonor in this verse, doesn't he? In verse number 23 images resembling mortal man. The immortal God, he says in verse 23, we turn away from and we worship mortal man. In the first century, Caesar was considered to be God. Other rulers have desired divine worship over the centuries. So, unbelieving man has turned away from the immortal God who has revealed himself and bestowed the honor and praise due to that God on mortal man. The apostle goes on to birds and animals and creeping things 
And we can see the descending order in height from birds to animals to creeping things. There is this degradation in the unbelieving worship and honor which God deserves, which has been given to idols and mortal man. The second element of the sin that's committed is exchange in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. They exchanged this truth about God, that he was the living God, that he was the immortal God, And they choose this lie, imagining that this stone object, this wooden object, could hear them and control their life and respond to their prayers. You remember Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, as they cut themselves with knives, as they danced around the altar, as they cried out to Baal to hear them and send fire down. They were crying out to a lie. To a being who never existed at all. They changed the truth about the living God to a lie. And then the third word which is is used is this word unfit in verse uh, number 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. This this word is a, a word which means to test, to examine, to try. We might take a piece of metal and we might examine it to see if it's really the type of metal which it claims to be, gold, silver, bronze, and so mankind. They they sample this knowledge of the living God and they say, that's not for me. That's not the lifestyle I want to follow. That's not the God I want to worship. They think it unfit to give their heart and their honor and their worship to the supreme being who has made all things. Prince Harry and Meghan, they sampled royalty. They had great insight and knowledge of living and behaving as a royal, and they decided that was not for them. They want their independence to earn their their own living to do their own thing, to live outside of that constricted, limited experience of being a royal. And this is what humankind has done with the knowledge of God. They have judged it to be unfit to commit themselves to the worship, service, and honor of the living and true God. Here is the human rejection by exchange, by dishonor, by judging it unfit for them to praise and serve the living God. And the greatest evidence of this in our society and in our time is the fall in church attendance, isn't it? That's the evidence that our society is turning away from the knowledge 
of the living and true God and in serving him and in committing to them and turning to the idols which are so available for us on the Sabbath day to fill our hearts and to take over our lives. In 2009, in the Church of England, for example, around a million people attended In 2019, just nine years later, a quarter of a million less were attending Sabbath day worship. In 1983, in the United Kingdom, two-thirds of the nation attended church and professed Christianity. In 2019, a third of the nation profess Christianity. We are seeing this in our time before our very eyes, our society, dishonoring the God who's revealed himself, exchanging the truth about God revealed in creation for idols, deeming it unfit to have a a knowledge, a reverent, worshipful knowledge Of the living and true God. Within our own denomination. We are witnessing this this same decline. Are we not? The church building in Larn. Is being sold off. No congregation there anymore. The congregation in Bally Lane. Has 16 members. The congregation in Carrick Fergus is very small. Right across the board, across denominations, across the United Kingdom, we are seeing in our society what Paul describes here, mankind turning away from the knowledge that God has revealed of himself and turning to idols, to other things to fill our hearts to consume our affections and to be devoted to. So what does God do about it? What does he do about it? Does he wait until the last day? Does he document every insult, dishonor and rejection And store it up to pull it out at the final judgment. This chapter emphasizes that God is acting now. Three times over in these verses we read the phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. We have it in verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. God gave them up. Here is unbelieving mankind rejecting this revelation of God. And God responds in time. Now, long before the final judgment, he gives them up. This is a a phrase perhaps unusual to us, but was very familiar to to Paul and, and other Jews from the Old Testament. 
It was a phrase which had an interesting journey through the Old Testament. It was used initially as a promise from God for his people that as they went into the land of Canaan, God would give their enemies up to them in battle. So they would triumph over them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, God promises his people that as they follow him, their enemies would be delivered into their hands. God would give their enemies up to them and they would overcome them and defeat them. But as Israel dwelt in the land of of Canaan, as they themselves turned to idolatry, we begin to hear the prophets turning that promise away from them to a judgment on them. And the judgment was that God gave them up, his own people who had turned to idolatry, to their enemies. And now we have a third application of this phrase of judgment which God exercises not in the last day but in time. Here are unbelieving Gentiles with this general revelation This book of nature, so clear, so loud, in every heart, in every life. And they're rejecting this revelation of God in nature. And and God's reaction to them is, he gives them up. Now the debate among commentators and theologians is this, is God's action passive or acteth? Is God passive in giving them up? Does he just leave society to go its way? To be filled with the results of its own sinfulness and, and unbelief and despair and hopelessness? Is it a passive giving up? Go to a commentator on Romans. He argues that it is. He says it's like letting A boat go in a strong current. And you let go of this boat and the current just drifts it away and it smashes up on rocks or goes over a waterfall. But the context here and in other places seems to argue that God is actively involved in giving up society who turns their back on him. The word is used throughout the New Testament of a judge handing a criminal over to punishment. The judge doesn't just leave the criminal to stew in his own juice for his conscience to torment him or her in their own lives, in their own homes. But the judge consciously, actively hands over the criminal to the punishment that they deserve. And there seems to be this active action of God in response to the unbelief of society. He gives them up. Ukraine is frustrated, isn't it? That there is NATO all around them with arms, with members, and they seem to be actively watching what, passively, sorry, passively watching what's going on in Ukraine. And Ukraine are always calling on more action, more intervention, more help. But God is not passively watching the rejection of his revelation 
and the dishonor of his name. It seems there is this active involvement of God now. What the apostles spoke of in verse 18, that the revelation of God's wrath is happening at this time. He is giving society up. We can despair, can't we, in our time? And should despair. We can at times think that evil is winning. That the devil is progressing. That things are out of control. But this passage assures us and helps us to interpret our time and society. That God is actively involved in this moral decline. In the devaluing of ethics and humanity. And the service of the living God. The first phase then is human rejection. The second phrase, phase is divine retribution. He gives them up. But thirdly, there is the ensuing result. What does he give them up to? And this is the point we try to emphasize at the very start. That's the punishment fits the crime. The crime of dishonoring. The crime of exchanging. The crime of deeming unfit. Those are the three things which God gives society up to. He gives them up to the punishment of dishonoring. To the punishment of exchanging. To the punishment of deeming unfit. I read a parenting book. I I try to read one now and again. Uh, And uh, it can be a very humbling experience, uh, a very rebuking experience. But one thing that does uh, stick in my mind, uh, I haven't utilized it uh, terribly much. Uh, My children would probably uh, testify to this. Uh, But uh, this uh, author suggested uh, that the the, the punishment should fit the crime. So there's, there's the child at the table. Starts to throw food all over the kitchen. They're denied their treat. So the punishment is connected to the crime. And this is what our God is doing. And we can see it right before our very eyes. So what does society do to him? Society dishonors him. Doesn't give him the respect, the worship that he deserves from the revelation which everyone receives. So what is the punishment? We have the punishment in verse 24. They dishonor their bodies among themselves. The vertical is dishonoring. The horizontal is dishonoring. The punishment matches the crime. We dishonor God. God punishes us with dishonoring one another. Dishonor 
their bodies among themselves. Amber Heard has been testifying in court publicly, reported every day of the dishonoring that's been shown to her. And and, and if it's true, there has got to be this connection between the vertical dishonoring of God and the subsequent dishonoring among one another. The second sin noticed was the exchange. The exchange, the truth of God for a lie in verse number 25. And what is God giving up society to? They've looked at God's truth. They've received God's truth. They have God's truth deep in the base of their heart. Every single human being. And they've exchanged that truth for a lie. What is the punishment God gives society up to? It's exchange. Verse number 26 and 27. Their woman exchanged natural relations for those contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations for shameless acts with men. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The punishment is that they exchange natural relations for unnatural relations. The natural relations refers to what God instills in nature, in creation. One man for one woman, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. The natural relation is man and woman. They exchange that for unnatural relations. And we're seeing it in our time. And it's linked to the vertical exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And thirdly, the other description of man's reaction to God's revelation is, in verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They considered it worthless to serve God, to honor God, to give their lives to God. They tested this knowledge. They considered this lifestyle and turned their backs on this. This is not for them. They desire to live in a different way, in another manner. Well, God's response is that he gives them up, verse 28, to a debased mind. It's the same Greek word, an unfit mind, a worthless mind, a mind which will make wrong decisions which will engage in worthless and empty practices. And he lists 21 vices which are worthless, empty, futile, and damaging. The vertical response to God's revelation reaps a horizontal experience within society. And helps us to understand our time, our age, behavior in our community. 
It has an incredible pastoral application, doesn't it? That the vertical is fundamental to the horizontal. The elders see someone not attending church and we talk in our session meeting and say, well, if this person keeps doing that, then they will grow cold as a Christian. It will damage their Christian walk. We might cite the example, the helpful example of the coal in the fire, that if this piece of coal is taken out of the fire, it will go cold on the hearth. We all need fellowship. And if this person stops attending church, they will grow cold. They will start making bad decisions. They will go off the rails. But isn't that the wrong way around? We are saying the horizontal will affect the vertical. Whereas what we should be saying as elders is this person's not attending church. There's something wrong with their relationship with God because it's the vertical that determines our behavior with one another. Human rejection. Divine retribution. The ensuing result. Are we convinced that people without a Bible, unchurched tribes, unreached tribes, are guilty before God? Have we come to that conviction yet? It's a big question. It's a big question among evangelicals. Is God just? in damning those who've never heard of Jesus. Paul's argument is not people are guilty because they haven't heard of Jesus. Paul's argument is people are guilty because they've rejected general revelation. They're without excuse. Are we convinced of that? Do we recognize that? Do we understand that that is what the apostle is saying here? That all mankind is guilty before God because they have light. They have knowledge. They have an awareness from creation and inside their very soul that there is a supreme being. Well, he anticipates that you won't be convinced. And so he adds the last verse in this chapter. They know God's righteous decree. That those who practice such things deserve to die. And they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. What knowledge the unbeliever has. This innate sense, not only of God, but of right and wrong. And that if I do this thing, God's judgment will come raining down upon me. I will stand before my maker at the last day. The unbeliever, Paul asserts, knows all of this. But such is their blindness that they not only do those evil practices, but in a considered way, in a calculated way, they approve of those evil practices. Such is their knowledge. And such. Is their guilt. And what. Our town needs. Is a listening ear at. Nosh and Natter. Is any counselling. 
friendship that we can provide in Lower Mary Street. Your neighbour needs a friendly heart, a kind welcome, an open home. But above everything, they need the gospel. They need to hear of Christ. They need to seek and find his salvation because they are guilty before God. They have knowledge of his character and of his judgments and they are suppressing that knowledge. They need the Spirit of God to transform their hearts and open their eyes and give them that ability to come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Para did oh my has been ingrained in our hearts in this chapter. It's the Greek word for God gave up. Para did oh my and Paul keeps saying it and he wants to press it into our hearts. Para did oh my, para did oh my, para did oh my. God is active in our time, in society. He is giving up unbelievers to just punishment in this time. That sobers us. And we hang on to the word para did oh my until we come to chapter 8 verse 32. And he uses it again. God gave up his son. The just God who gives up sinners to punishment gave up his perfect son to punishment. So that you and I who are guilty can be forgiven of all of our sins and be the recipients of the perfect righteousness of Jesus and be sheltered from that just wrath of God which we deserve.